Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the Pledge Drive, and uh, during the Pledge Drive, we do best of on Access Utah. We uh, try to find some segments that which illustrate to what we do and put our best foot forward, and uh, we think we've done that uh, for today. Uh, late in the program, we will hear a commentary or two from uh, Gina Wickwar. That's on the occasion of Vincent and Gina Wickwar uh, putting up uh, money for uh, listener challenges uh, today. So thanks to them, and our thanks to Gina for her uh, thought-provoking uh, commentaries, radio essays on uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, and uh, we will be hearing a bit of science as well. Um, we did a program in July on Yellowstone Super Volcano and uh, talked with a couple of scientists there. So we'll talk about Super Volcano risks there and also how you can get involved in science. And we'll be talking uh, folklore, of course. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, USU Assistant Professor of English and uh, folklorist uh, Lynn McNeil. Uh, so we welcome you and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I always love being here. Uh, and so you got a couple hats on, uh, folklorist, uh, frequent guest on Access Utah, but also uh, supporter of, of UPR. Oh, of course. Yes. For a long time now. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, before we jump into folklore, and I'm always fascinated folklore, so thank you for, for coming in so often. On, and this particular program, you weren't able to join us, so you brought in some folklores. Uh, but Vincent and Gina Wickwar have generously offered to match dollar for dollar all pledges made today up to $2,000. Our goal for Access Utah is $500. Uh, when you call uh, and make a pledge during Access Utah right now, your uh, pledge is doubled. The number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Vince Wickwar is with USU Center for Atmospheric and Space Sciences. If you see the green beam uh, shooting into the heavens on uh, on evenings, night times, that's Vincent Wickwar. He's, he's involved with that. They're probing the atmosphere. And, of course, Gina Wickwar uh, does uh, radio essays for us. You hear those here on Access Utah. The green beam is such a wonderful local source of folklore, what what that is, what's going on there, all the yeah. different attempts to explain it. It's sort of a nice tie-in for talking folklore today, and we have the originator of the green beam. So I didn't know that. So the green beam, there's folklore surrounding that. Well, just mm. even the, the, the question, folklore loves to step in when people don't have explanations mm. for things, official or formal explanations. Yeah. And it's one of those interesting identifiers of of Cache Valley and of Logan is that yeah. we have this, you know, light shining through our night sky that <laughs> lets people know their home. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so the number again, 800-826-1495. We'd love to see good response for Access Utah. Uh, when you call right now and uh, some wonderful volunteers are standing by, uh, it's a vote in support of uh, Access Utah. And folklore. Vote, and folklore. You know, vote for folklore. Vote for folklore, folks. Now's the time. If you're wondering, when should I really donate to UPR? Do it for folklore. Do it now. Do it for Lynn. Do it for folklore. <laughs> do it for Access Utah. I won't Utah. say do there it for me. I'll say do it for folklore <laughs> in, in general. <laughs> the number is 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Or you can go to upr.org. Uh, I want to read this. This is uh, from an introduction to your TED Talk. You did a, a talk for mm -hmm. TEDxUSU. Uh, when most people think of folklore, they think of the old, the rural, the rustic. They typically don't think of the Internet. And uh, you, so you in your, in your TED Talk, you talk about the Internet. And that's what you focus on, digital folklore. Yes, right? absolutely. Digital folklore. And it's true. The people tend to see an unfortunate dichotomy between technology and tradition. And technology as 
as any technological advancement we have made as people just provides us with yet another venue in which to be people and interact with each other and develop traditions and customs and norms and social expectations and all of that stuff. And as a folklorist, the development of the internet over the past 20 something years has just been an incredible opportunity to Mm. find more folklore. You're no neo-Luddite. I I Uh, happen to know. (laughs) No, that's true. (laughs) You always encourage us if we can attend in that direction to say, well, there's, there is negative, Mm -hmm. but there's positive too. We just bring ourselves right. Yes, absolutely. I tell my students this all the time. And to me, it's a very uplifting message, though I understand it doesn't always sound that way when I say that people have always been terrible. The internet didn't make us terrible. We are are just really good at being awful in any venue provided us. But (laughs) the flip side of that is that we are really good at stepping up and being amazing Mm -hmm. to each other and for each other in any venue available to us. So I think the internet, it highlights and exacerbates a lot of what goes on in the world today, both in the realms of positive influence and negative influence. Mm -hmm. So we see extremity on both those sides, and it was really easy to get caught up in the bad stuff. And I think it's good to remember that we do a lot of really great, amazing stuff Mm. online as well. We're going to hear a little bit more about that in the segment we've chosen from this this episode on the Slenderman. So so tell us about the Slenderman. You, you had a whole conference here at USU. We, we brought, did. We brought in three folklorists, and then yep. we had an enjoyable hour talking with them. Awesome. Yeah, so Slenderman is basically an online urban legend figure. He began in 2009. That is not when most people heard of him, but he had a rather perfunctory origin. There was a um, an internet forum that said, create a paranormal image. And this one user who went by the name Victor Surge created these really well done photoshopped photographs and, and introduced Slenderman to the world. And it was just one of those things that clicked. It resonated with people. He'd hit all the right notes to, to really kick off an amazing legend and people ran with it. People started filling in backstory. They started developing the mythos of Slenderman and, Unfortunately, the way that most people not in that small community online heard about Slenderman was in um, 2014 when two young women in Wisconsin stabbed a friend 19 times um, in order to please or or appeal to Slenderman. And so unfortunately, that being most people's first introduction to this character cast a very negative pall over all of this. Um, a movie just came out. Uh, two months ago, no, one month ago in August, Slenderman, the movie that some people felt was in poor taste, capitalizing on this tragedy. The the upshot is, is that Slenderman is alive and well online, as all folklore does, continues apace, regardless of what our institutions feel about that. Mm. And so it is a, a thing we are left to contend with and understand and mm. figure out. And thankfully, we have folklorists to do that. Um, this is... I don't know if it's unique, but it's very unusual in the in, in the fact that we can trace the exact creation yep. of, of this particular bit of folklore. Yeah, that's something that the internet has allowed us to do that we couldn't do before. We we can't we can go back and find perhaps the first published documentation of something like Bigfoot or the Yeti or the Chupacabra, but with the internet, when something is born digital, we have a different level of access to origins. But as any any folklorist will tell you, the origins of something 
rarely explain its continued circulation in a population. Mm-hmm. It's the continued circulation of any piece of folklore, whether it's a legend or a joke or a holiday custom or anything, has so much more to do with what it is doing for people today, what it's articulating, what it's illustrating, what it's dramatizing, what it's allowing us to act out in our daily lives. That explains the the perpetuation of folklore so much better than its point of origin. But this one is interesting. We can mm-hmm. We can pinpoint it so... So clearly and so precisely, mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting change. And I guess if you, if you you've just articulated the the reasons, but if if you don't understand folklore or, or you have a different conception of folklore, I, I guess you would be tempted to say, well, we can trace it exactly to this guy created it, and therefore it shouldn't have a life. Yep. Uh, you know, it's yep. fake in a certain way. Exactly. You know. And that question of, of is it fake or is it real? And not just real, but is it real folklore, which is such an interesting question. Things move back and forth between what we might call pop culture or mass culture, something that is, you know, intellectual property, copyrighted. We know who owns it. We know who created it. And folk culture, which is largely anonymous and shared and communal, things move back and forth all the time. I mean, One of my favorite examples for my students is the song Happy Birthday, which for so long um, was under copyright. Nobody sang it on TV. That's why television shows gave us all these bizarre alternative birthday songs. And so it was sort of a piece of informal culture, but nobody learned Happy Birthday from a you know, choir book in a class, we learn it from our family and friends. And so we perceive that to be a sort of folk song, even though technically it wasn't. We mm. knew who held that copyright. We knew who wrote that song. Um, so yeah, that, that that interplay is really common. And the more that our mass media likes to mimic things, the more we get found footage films like the Blair Witch Project mm-hmm. and things like that, we blur the lines between that folk culture and mass culture even mm. more. It's a wonderfully fluid relationship. Yeah. Before we hear this excerpt from this uh, this episode of Access Utah, uh, maybe describe the the Slender Man uh, a little more. He is beginning with the original image. Mm-hmm, absolutely, he's you know he's pretty stayed... creepy, pretty scary. Oh yes, very. And he has stayed surprisingly true to his initial depiction, which tells us something about how spot on that that depiction was. He's depicted as very very tall, very slender, obviously skinny, um, usually dressed in something that looks like a black business suit, often with a red tie. And perhaps most strikingly, he has no distinct facial features, just a blank white face. And his arms and legs, in addition to being a little too long, there's also a suggestion perhaps of tentacles or tendrils, or sometimes they get depicted more angular and become like spider legs or something like that. Sometimes it's obvious and and that's a big feature of the depiction. Sometimes it's more a suggestion in the background. And he's very very Pied Piper-like. He's often depicted with children, which is Mm -hmm. obviously something that threatens our society. We don't like that. We don't like people um, who take unpleasant interest in our children. Um, One of the original pictures depicted him appearing to be leading children away. The caption just says, we didn't want to go. Um, The other one, he's at a playground. So children are playing in the front of the picture. And in the background, he's sort of lurking menacingly. And this was a big part of the the original depiction of Slenderman is that he watches. He watches. He waits. He listens. And he has almost this unavoidable lure and so we can see themes in folklore, you know, dating back hundreds of years to these ideas that that someone's going to come along and draw children away. And then we have the reality of the Wisconsin stabbings, and it, it starts to seem like 
it worked rather mm-hmm. horribly. That played right into that cultural expectation. And there's an intersection there, at least in this one case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tell us. Uh, we referenced just before the segment we were to hear. We also referenced the the, the blue whale. Yeah, this uh, is phenomenon. A, Tell us about this. This is disturbing. This is much newer than Slender Man. Um, I believe it started around 2016, though there are some claims that, that it started earlier. This is something that's much foggier. We have a lot less clarity on the origins of this or even on how it manifests. It's what's known online as a suicide challenge. So young people will fall into this or discover this game, it's called, which is a, a unpleasant term for this, where they receive from an unknown source a series of escalating challenges. And the challenges might be antisocial behaviors. They might be directed towards self-harm or something like this. But the challenge or game culminates in um, a request that the person kill themselves. And again, details are fuzzy. It, it appears that it has actually happened in several instances. It began in Russia. The first stories about this were about Russian youths um, giving in to this challenge, though there's been many claims that it's a hoax as well and that it's been retroactively applied as people try and make sense of why would a promising young person want to end their own lives? Perhaps it's this. Maybe it's this insidious internet challenge and that's what's come into play. And the reality is, is that we don't 100% know, but like any successful legend, this is tapping into our anxieties majorly. And there have been other instances like this, other challenges that deal with similarly unpleasant things online. Um, And it's definitely something that we are stressed out about right now. Mm. Uh, Let me get the phone number again. We have a challenge going. It's uh, Vince and Gina Wickwar, um, longtime friends of UPR. They've uh, issued a listener challenge. We're uh, matching dollar for dollar, all pledges made today up to two thousand dollars. Our goal in the Access Utah is five hundred dollars. So Vincent and Gina Wickwar will match dollar for dollar. Your money doubled during Access Utah. Hope you take advantage of this and uh, support this uh, great programming. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upr dot org. Uh, let's actually take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear this segment uh, from uh, an episode. Um, on the Slender Man, we have with us uh, USU Assistant Professor of English and folklorist um, Lynn McNeil. So we'll hear this segment following this break. Hey, I'm Tom Power. The Emmys are taking over Hollywood. You're going to find out who will be taking home the top awards in television on Monday night. But before the big night gets underway, you're going to hear from some of this year's big contenders like Sandra O, oh, Brian Tyree Henry, and Neil Patrick Harris. That is coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Is Utah Public Radio a road trip staple for your family? Do you listen while running errands around town or tune into your favorite program while cleaning? The UPR staff is sharing where we listen to public radio on our social media accounts, and we want you to join us. Share your favorite listening locations with us via email or on social media using the hashtag WhereIListenUPR. We can't wait to hear from you. In 2016, Illinois became ground zero for Russian hackers' attempts to infiltrate American voting. We thought we were doing everything we could to employ excellent cybersecurity. As it turns out, it was a mistake on our part. 
It was us, you know, leaving a window open. Lessons learned on voting security, plus the damage from Florence, Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. That's this afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's best of Access Utah today. Later in the program, we'll hear uh, an excerpt from an episode on the Yellowstone supervolcano, talking about how people can get involved in science. Uh, we'll also hear a commentary from Gina Wickwar. Uh, and speaking of Gina Wickwar, Vincent and Gina Wickwar have issued a listener challenge today. It's an all-day challenge. Your, uh, your money doubled dollar for dollar up to $2,000 throughout the day. Our goal is $500 uh, during Access Utah today, and uh, so your pledge now is doubled. Thanks to Vincent and uh, Gina Wickworth. Our thanks to them. And thanks to you for listening. And if you've not taken care of that uh, listener uh, challenge, that pledge, uh, please do so now. We're inviting you to call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. We have with us USU Assistant Professor of English, uh, Lynn McNeil, folklorist, uh, frequent guest on Access Utah. Uh, before we get to this excerpt, maybe Lynn, uh, put your hat on as listener and member of Utah Public Radio. Um, what would you say the the different? It's an important difference, right? There's there's a, a certain subset of the listeners who actually become members, and that's yep. how it all works. If we can get you to become a member, exactly. And the the reality of it is, if you're listening, and especially if you're listening during the pledge drive, you're already a member in your heart. You are a part of this community. It is time to put your money where your ears are and become a paying member, a contributing member, so that you are giving back to the station that gives so much to us. I mean, Utah Public Radio, for me, it it does two things. One, it informs me of the world at large, which is so important. I'm a better conversationalist. I'm a more interesting person because I listen to Utah Public Radio. But it also embeds me in my community even more. And that's something that I think is just invaluable as as an option to be able to to be able to pay not not inordinate amounts of money um, to be able to join a challenge like this that Vincent and Gina Wickware. This is the good kind of challenge, not a creepy internet challenge. This is the kind of challenge you should take to make sure that Utah Public Radio is funded, is able to provide all of us with the information and the community involvement that it does. The the way to take advantage of that is 800-826-1495. Your call, a couple of minutes is all it takes. Friendly volunteer, and you will have taken care of that. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. So let's uh, let's hear this. Uh, this is, in fact, you put together this conference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn McNeil, you brought in Amanda Brennan, who's Tumblr's Senior Content Insights Manager and Internet uh, Librarian. I didn't know the Internet had a librarian, but Magic, she's isn't an it? Internet yep. Librarian. Dr. Elizabeth Libby Tucker, Distinguished Service Professor of English, at Binghamton University, specializes in children's and adolescents folklore, folklore of supernatural and legends, and Trevor uh, Blank, Associate Professor of Communication at State University of New York at Potsdam. And uh, so we get into a discussion of uh, the good and the bad of the Internet here. So I wonder if you'd talk about that. Uh, This is, in some ways, I'm sure, this is just the new place we come together in uh, social groups. Yeah, completely. Is in, in, you know, so... That's the good side, right? Is is there something different about the way we interact on the internet that's that's harmful, or is it just we bring all of our foibles and our positives to the internet? I think it's a little bit 
of what you're doing. And I think it's great to put this in the context of the slender verse, it, what it's called. Is it the slender verse is the whole uh, blogs and uh, what YouTube series, all of the content around Slenderman. Uh, one of the examples I used yesterday was a post where someone uh, put up on Tumblr, I love the slender verse. You know, it's comforting to me. I love watching this series when I'm sad. It makes me happy. And the people that I found here are my people. They understand me. And when when I don't feel like I fit in, I can go here and find, you know, talk to the people who get me. And I think no matter what kind of community you're in, you can find your people online, whether that's good or bad, like in the case of the uprising of Nazis right now online, or in the case of like finding your fitness partner online. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. And it's it's a double-edged sword. When you give people a way to find community, whether it's a, for a good or a bad reason, I don't know. It's, it's a tough thing working in internet culture right now, trying to work through that. I wonder, um, you know, we could turn into an angry old man here shaking my fist, but um, I think there is a perception out there that uh, in the olden days, we had just three networks. <laughs> we gathered to watch Cronkite and Johnny Carson. There was at least some shared experience, you know, whether or not you agreed with what was being said. It was only only a few choices, and mm-hmm. therefore that promoted kind of a cohesiveness, you know, that we, yeah. we were all sitting around the same campfire. Now, you know, you can you can go find your own very specific group. Yeah. Uh, there's there's fragmentation, perhaps. I suppose there's good and bad happening. I wonder what your perspective is. Yeah, I think it's it allows people to really be the truest form of themselves. Like, if you are very interested in Furbies in 2018, there's a whole community of Furby people on Tumblr, and they are making art. There's a thing called a long Furby, uh, and you can look it up. Someone bought a bunch of Furbies, stitched them together, and created this new weird thing. And it brings them so much joy. Mm. And it's very harmless. It's just like, oh, Furbies, that was a thing when I was growing up in the early late 90s, early 2000s. And to see someone just bringing new life into it, like, what's the harm in that? And if I like live in a rural area where like I love Furbies, but everyone else thinks I'm weird, it's really comforting to go online and to find the people who get it, to find the people who share the thing that you love the most. And I, I think in that context, it's just really wonderful because you can be so, so much more of a fuller person and dive into the thing you love with the people who love it, just like you do. Hmm. I wonder just one more thing on this uh, subtopic. Um, I love that phenomenon. For example, on YouTube, oh, cool. mm-hmm. I will sometimes do a deep dive and spend the evening, well, I have at least once, uh, spent the evening uh, searching Romanian Sopranos, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> and like everyone does, right? But but that's the point. <laughs> Maybe I should get off my couch and go to the opera and, and uh, associate with like people. Is it healthy for me to be... Yeah, just imagine you know, if you were a teenager and you didn't have money to go to the opera, but you find out you love Romanian Sopranos. And like mm-hmm. the beauty of internet community is you can find something that you didn't even know you loved. Um, I'm very into miniature food and people make it out of a polymer clay. And I didn't even know that was a thing until I stumbled upon it on Tumblr. And I was like, oh my gosh. And now like I follow a bunch of blogs. I've bought art pieces. Like uh, I have a full tea set on a ring and it's just like it's this weird thing that i would have never found without the internet hmm. elizabeth tucker i wonder if you've 
thought about this in relation to you, you study, you know, children and, uh, and their play and the, and the legends and their folklore. I wonder if you've thought uh, any about the connection to what kids do online. I guess they take some of that online. They're able to find people that uh, maybe they didn't know were out there that share their views online. But uh, there might be a danger or not of, of maybe becoming isolated online, too. That's the perfect question for me because since the early 2000s, I've been doing all my research on children using YouTube because, well, actually, I have to say since 2005 because that's when it started. But with YouTube, you have many, many performances that children have chosen to create. And it's become hugely influential. I, I showed yesterday a couple of prank videos made by kids who pranking their younger brothers or sisters, pretending to be Slenderman, scaring them to death, making them scream. The more genuine the scream, the better the prank succeeds. And then all these kids get online and say, oh, great job, or, oh, your brother's a pussy, <laughs> things like that. Um, they have a lot of fun. And then those videos influence other people's pranking and influence the flow of the folk culture mm -hmm. in one direction or another. So so kids have just become very screen-oriented in terms of their folk behavior, including pranks. And with Slenderman pranks in particular, they become the bogeyman. One of them takes on the powerful role okay. of the yeah. guy wearing a pillowcase over his head in a suit jacket who mm -hmm. scares younger, more gullible people into gibbering screaming, you know, <laughs> incoherent behavior, which makes them very happy. And then they go online going, yeah, I did it. <laughs> so they have a lot of fun. I guess this is a way to co-opt the legend, right? And to take some of the fear out of it. Yes. If you become Slenderman yourself, right? Exactly. Yeah. I oh, just have a couple of minutes, uh, literally two minutes. So uh, Trevor Blank, I want you to tell me just the, the, the one minute, minute and a half version of celebrity urban legends, humor, and the vernacular expression online. And then you'll give the hour-long version here in about five minutes. Yes. Uh, well, basically, I'll be talking about um, how celebrities kind of are, are intimate strangers, and even though we don't have uh, a real relationship with them typically, it's typically a one-sided relationship uh, that we project onto. Uh, nevertheless, when someone uh, dies or uh, has an accidental drug overdose or something happens, um, we express our, our different anxieties or our different feelings about that celebrity through humor uh, or through urban legends. Um, and so I'll be talking about a bunch of different examples of, uh, of urban legends that um, have followed celebrities uh, throughout their careers and what kind of that means, uh, as well as some of the jokes and uh, death humor surrounding like Michael Jackson, for example. Um, and I, I should probably stop there or I'll get too carried away. Okay. All right. <laughs> Very good. And I can't let the program go without this. You won an award for research on fart lore? Yes, I did. Is that what I think it is? It's exactly what you think it is. Okay. It was, yeah, I, it was uh, uh, an article titled Cheeky Behavior, the Meaning and Function of Fart Lore in Childhood and Adolescence. <laughs> so one of, my, one of my favorite titles I've ever come up with. I'll remind you that you're listening to NPR. Um, your public radio sta station. Uh, that's hey, you know, not a bad gig. Hey, I won an award, so, so therefore it's right. uh, it's legit now. That's right. That's right. So politics, deep thoughts, and farts. And this is this is NPR. This is we are an NPR affiliate. Uh, so it, it, we think deeply here, but well, we have fun too. That's what we're illustrating. 
goodness. It's uh, so uh, Trevor Lank, by the way, um, in addition to that uh, branch of, of study, uh, he's your co-author on a new book. Yes, that's right. My, my co-editor. Yes, the book came out literally last week with uh, USU Press has done an amazing job putting this book together. And it's the first volume by folklorists about Slenderman, and we are very excited um, to have it out, and you can buy it, and if you're interested in legends, urban legends, scary stuff, or the internet in general, it's a it's a really great read. All of our contributors did a fantastic job, and yeah. I have to say, hearing all those voices in that clip, I, I really tried to drive home to our students, those are three absolutely incredible scholars, and the the fact that they were all here, all in one place, all on Access Utah, talking about their various areas of expertise is just, those are not voices that, that you get to hear often that come together, that, that are each in their, in their own realm, just such unbelievably accomplished people. It's so fun to, to know that, that there's a place here for, for those voices to, to get a platform. Uh, it, it is a win-win because we we get great discussions like the, mm-hmm. the part of one you heard there. So thank you for bringing them in. Uh, that kind of radio worth supporting, I think you would Absolutely. agree, Lynn McNeil. Indeed. Uh, so the the way to do that is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And a reminder, Vincent and Gina Wickwar have put up their money, uh, $2,000. Uh, all of that, they want to be matched dollar for dollar. And so the goal for Access Utah is $500. Your pledge is doubled today on Access Utah uh, by Vincent and Gina Wickwar. So our thanks to them. Later in the program, we'll hear uh, one of Gina Wickwar's uh, radio essays. So she contributes to the program. In that way, and she and Vincent contribute uh, with their money as well. 800 826 1495. Won't you join your support with theirs, with Lynn's, and with, with all of ours? 800 826 1495. Or you can go to upr.org. Let's take another break. When we come back, let's hear uh, some science Yellowstone Supervolcano. Hispanic Heritage Month is getting underway here in the U.S., and we're celebrating the musical side here on PT. Coming up, cellist Gabriel Cabezas will join us to talk about visibility, music, and his personal hero. I'm Fred Child. That's the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hello, this is Terry Guy, Development Officer with Utah Public Radio. 45 years ago, when UPR was just 20 years old, the Watergate hearings began in the United States Senate, and President Richard Nixon told the nation, I am not a crook. The classic film American Graffiti premiered. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled on Roe v. Wade. Skylab, the United States' first space station, was launched. And I graduated from high school and became a listener to public radio. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
You're listening to Access Utah. It's the best of for our pledge drive. And uh, we have heard uh, about folklore and the Slender Man. And uh, we have with us, in fact, folklorist Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of English at Utah State University. And uh, we're going to make a transition uh, next to science and illustrate some of the great science programming that we do on UPR. In fact, we, we've had such great response to science programming that we've uh, set a goal. We're going to try to do more science here on the program, and so um, hopefully you'll you'll hear more of that uh, coming up. But we uh, had a program uh, on Yellowstone Supervolcano. Before we get to that, the number once again is 800-826-1495. Quite frankly, the central purpose of today's episode is to raise a lot of money for Access mm-hmm. Utah and for Utah Public Radio. And uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, very well positioned to help us with that because you're not only a listener, you're a member. I am a sustaining member of Utah Public Radio. It's something that I am very proud of being able to support and be involved with. And I think, you know, so I've been spending the summer a little bit up the canyon, re-roofing a cabin up there. And when you go up the canyon, you know, Logan Canyon, there's no cell service, there's no internet. You're sort of escaping technology. But you know what there is? There's Utah Public Radio. You can drive almost all the way through Logan Canyon and still get a Utah Public Radio signal. And I think that's really... I think that's really a valuable thing because when I go up the canyon to escape my technology, I'm going to develop a deeper sense of connectedness to this place. And that's actually what Utah Public Radio does as well. So it's it's not a it's not an invasion of technology that I can get Utah Public Radio up the canyon. It actually goes hand in hand with that sense of developing a deeper connection with the place I live, with the people that I live here with. And I feel like that is such a valuable experience that everyone really should do their part and contribute to keeping this station up and running and able to provide us with that sense of of community connection. And you don't have to break your personal bank to do that, right? Exactly. Uh, Whatever the the amount we're happy with. Yeah, you know, this is not, you don't have to, you know, take out a second mortgage in order to do this just for very small amounts. It can make a very big difference. If you buy a daily cup of coffee, if you go see a movie once a week, you can double that Give it to Utah Public Radio and make a big, big difference. And here's the place to do it. Uh, A quick phone call is all it takes. Uh, 800-826-1495. Some great volunteers are standing by. 800-826-1495. Or you can go to upr.org. And don't forget that Vincent and Gina Wickwar, uh, friends of the station, are uh, matching your money dollar for dollar. Uh, in a listener challenge, so your money is doubled, and our goal is $500 during Access Utah today. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So, Lynn, we uh, had a program in July uh, responding to the volcanoes were in the news uh, a lot uh, at that Mm -hmm. point, eruptions in Hawaii and Guatemala and in Bali. And uh, we recognize we have a volcano next door. Indeed. Uh, the Yellowstone supervolcano, 44 miles wide. An eruption of this caldera volcano, as scientists call it, is very unlikely but potentially catastrophic. So we asked a couple of scientists to talk about it. We talked with Michael Pollan, scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Jamie Farrell, assistant research professor in the University of Utah Department of Geology and Geophysics, and chief seismologist with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Uh, Here's a portion of that conversation. Jamie Farrell, the same question to you. Where do we, how do we assess the risk? Um, and and then that's connected to preparedness. Yeah, so I would say, you know, you use the word worried. Um, I don't know if that's quite the right word to use. I mean, we get a lot of calls here 
um, people asking us if they should be worried about Yellowstone eruptions and should they cancel their plans to go to Yellowstone. And the, the, the answer is definitely no. Uh, Yellowstone's a great place to, to visit. You can see some things that you can't see anywhere else in the world. Um, everybody should have a chance to see that. Um, and you definitely should not be worried about an eruption uh, in Yellowstone. It's, it's, it's very unlikely. Um, but you should appreciate what the hazards and what the risks are of any, anything you're doing. For example, if you live in an area that's prone to wildfires, you, you, know, you need to understand that. You need to know what you're up against and how you can, what you can do to mitigate uh, that risk. And uh, earthquakes and volcanoes are no different. Um, you know, people, if it makes sense to them, they can get earthquake insurance. Um, you know, you can get fire insurance. You can get flood insurance. All these things are steps that you can take to mitigate that risk or to be prepared for any type of disaster, whether it's a natural disaster, a financial disaster, anything. Um, being prepared for something is always a good idea, um, and volcanic eruptions is no different. I wonder, um, Mike Poland, if you could tell me a little bit about some of the latest science. I've been reading a bit about, uh, back to volcanoes um, in the supervolcano there, uh, a study out of University of Oregon, which is advancing science a little bit on on uh, the, the Yellowstone volcano. Yeah, there's a lot of neat studies coming out right now about Yellowstone. Um, some of them, are the, I, I guess I see them in coming from two different directions. Some of them are looking at uh, products of eruptive, uh, past eruptive episodes, whether they're lava flows or ash flows, and trying to uh, reconstruct the magma system that existed when these things erupted and, and get a clue of, of how long the magma might have been accumulating beneath the caldera prior to a lava erupting or an, an ash flow erupting. And then uh, there are other studies, like the one from the, the University of Oregon, that approach it from a modeling perspective that look at the data we have now or and the, the structure that we know about. Say, how did we get to this place that we're at now? How did we build the magmatic system that exists at Yellowstone? And so, specifically in the Oregon study, they tried to come up with a way that some of the data that Jamie's group collected could be explained. How was the, the crustal structure and how did the magma intrude in such a way that you could get this sort of architecture for the magmatic system that we see today? And I think this is actually a good uh, example of the way science works. Um, we, we tend to approach it from multiple different directions by uh, by looking at uh, primary data that we may collect from the rocks, from uh, gases that may be released, or, or water, or changes in earthquakes or deformation and so forth. And then we also try to construct models, whether they're conceptual models and cartoons, or whether they're driven by uh, computer modeling. Um, it, it's a, a way of trying to explain the sorts of data that, uh, that we're collecting in the field. Jamie Farrell, uh, same question to you. Uh, what uh, new science got you excited about volcanoes or, or earthquakes? Well, I'll relate this to the question you asked earlier. You asked, "What's the you know the one thing that I think that I think we should know better um, about about the Yellowstone system?" Um, and for me, um, that is the nature of that magma reservoir. You know, how is how much melt is down there? How is it situated? And, and a lot of these new studies that are coming out are, are trying to get at that answer. Because um, if we know that, we can kind of know where we're at in the eruptive process uh, in the cycle. Um, you know, 
when, when the, some of the stuff that I've done, you know, using geophysical techniques to image that magma reservoir, you know, we, we don't get a perfect view of that. We get a very kind of fuzzy um, view of what's underneath the ground. You know, I mentioned earlier that we, we predict or, or we estimate that there's anywhere from 5 to 15% meltdown there, and that's really just an average uh, number over the entire system. We don't know how that melt is situated. If that melt is kind of evenly distributed throughout the whole magma reservoir, it doesn't pose that much of a threat right now because there's just not enough of it to, to, to make an eruption. But if that 5 to 15% is all situated in one little pocket in there, that could potentially be enough um, magma to mobilize and to make it to the surface and pr- create a smaller, a, a small volcanic eruption. Um, we don't know how that melt is situated down there, and a lot of these new studies um, are aimed at trying to figure that out. And that's what's exciting to me is that, you know, hopefully we're moving towards getting that answer of uh, how much melt is down there and uh, how is it sitting down there and, and what does that um, mean as far as potential for uh, future volcanic eruptions. Coming down to the end of our time, I want to return to uh, something we talked about earlier in, the, in our conversation, because I know some people want to engage. They're excited about uh, the science, whatever science they're um, interested in. I got a bit excited when I went to the USGS uh, site and saw that I could engage with, uh, you know, the steamboat uh, geyser. Maybe starting with Jer- uh, Jamie Farrell on this. How how can uh, lay people? Um, non-scientists get involved, more involved with the science? Well, there's a lot of information on, on the web pages, both through uh, the USGS, the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website, um, through our website, the University of Utah Seismograph Stations, and others. Um, you know, a lot of our data is up there in real time, and people can log on and see um, when was the last earthquake, where it was, um, you know, where do earthquakes are happening, if there's a swarm, where is a swarm happening, um, you know, you can, like you said, the steamboat stuff, um, they put up, we, we, you know, we put up there, you know, these are the things that you can look at to see if, um, you know, to see steamboat activity. Um, you can go on and, and, and just see a, a number of things to see what activity is happening right now. And, and this isn't just Yellowstone. This is really um, at many, many systems uh, throughout the world. Um, there's webcams that you can look at to see um, things, you know, right now, the webcams in Hawaii are amazing. Um, you can see, you know, active stuff happening right now in Hawaii. And, and uh, you know, just get as much information as you can. Ask questions. The people in Yellowstone are, are uh, pretty well aware of, 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 of the volcanic and the situation, and they're more than happy to explain um, that system to you. There's a, there's a number of people that go through Yellowstone and have no idea that they're sitting in one of the world's largest volcanoes. Um, and I think the interpreters there would be more than happy to explain that uh, to, to these people, and, and I think it would make their trip that much better. Mike Paul, and same question to you. How can people get engaged, get more engaged with the science? Well, I'd certainly echo what Jamie said. The, the data are out there on uh, the YVO website, on the University of Utah website, um, and, and on uh, the UNAVCO website. Uh, they've got a lot of the geodetic data, a lot of the deformation data. So there's ways to explore yourself, uh, the earthquakes that are happening, how the ground is moving, the, the, whether or not certain geysers are erupting. Well, you can watch webcams, look at uh, creek discharge. So there's a, a lot of fun ways you can uh, explore what's happening. Um, and that's without even going there. And, of course, going to Yellowstone is the, the ultimate thrill. I think it's 
the biggest perk of, of the jobs that we have is that we get to spend so much time in in America's first national park. Uh, it's, it's a national park for a reason. It's spectacular and made even more so by, by the great geology. We're also trying to put out more information. So everyone in the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory Consortium contributes to writing a weekly article, which uh, we call Yellowstone Caldera Chronicles. And it's got a bit of history, a bit of current activity, uh, lots of information about what's happening in Yellowstone and, and neat new science that we publish on the YVO website uh, every Monday. So um, we're trying to, to put more out there because it's, it's clear that people want to know more about, about Yellowstone. And, and there's a lot of information there, so we're trying to make that more accessible every day. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, along with Lynn McNeil, folklorist at USU and assistant professor of English here at USU. And uh, we are inviting you to become a member or renew your membership to Utah Public Radio during this exciting time. Access Utah, best of, and a uh, challenge from Vincent and Gina Wickwar, dollar-for-dollar match. Uh, so we've had a great response, Lynn. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming in. Um, I'm taking all the credit to, for yeah, folklore. Well, well, I'm giving you, know? you all the credit because uh, <laughs> <laughs> excellent appeals, and I think people are really want to support programming like this. It's, it's It makes you part of the community, right? Absolutely. Uh, so Marge Kramer called, Stephen McIntyre, Jane Beckwith, uh, Virginia Gruber, Ron Gillum, and Jim and Adrian Akers. Uh, thanks Thank to you. all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you all. If you haven't called yet, uh, now's the perfect time to do so. Uh, and uh, we'll, uh, we're taking it personally, in a good way, Lynn and I. We're, we're, <laughs> we'll be horribly you. offended if no more calls <laughs> if, come if in call. in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, we're, we're very grateful. Uh, thank you so much. A great, great response. Keep it coming. Uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. Uh, um, Lynn, um, this is, I, I don't know if you have uh, probably favorite programs or folklore related, any other uh, <laughs> listening that you, that you especially tune in for? You know, I, I'm, I'm tuned in pretty much all day at home. We have a smart home system. I'm not kidding when I say it wakes us up with Utah Public Radio and then, you know, keeps it as our as our background all day. But there are absolutely certain things that I simply love. Um, Q is one of them. Tom Power, the host, he's from Newfoundland, uh, took folklore classes in Newfoundland. I love just listening to him speak and remembering the times that I lived there and, and his you, guests. And you lived there and went to school there, I right? did. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. where I did my doctoral work, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland's folklore program. And it's just... It's like having this extended family. There's the there's the local Utah Public Radio folks who are so present and engaged here. And then there's this larger national public radio family where you feel like you're checking in with old friends when you get to to hear the programs that that play regularly and and stay on top of these things. And whether that's the news or whether that's wait, wait, don't tell me or ask me another, it's it's this sense that 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 this is also my community. These are also my people. Mm. I am engaged with all of this. I'm a part of all of this. And that's an unbeatable feeling. It really is. This is wonderful for, for us on staff, whether we get to get the other side. We're, we're broadcasting into the ether. You know, you can imagine it that way. And, and but uh, Is you, anyone you get, out there? Is anyone out there? But We know they are. But during the fun drive, we get to get that uh, response back and, yeah. and, and feel definitely part of that community. So we appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate your pledge and, uh, and hope that if you haven't, we uh, will hear from you. 800-826-1495.
So before we end here, I want to, uh, since we have the Vincent and Gina Wickwar Challenge, I want to hear from Gina Wickwar. She does a periodic, uh, regular um, radio essays for us. And uh, Gina Wickwar is a writer based in Cache Valley. And uh, just uh, her, her commentaries run the gamut. Uh, just uh, some serious uh, topics like uh, end-of-life issues, um, to um, not as serious, but somewhat serious. We're going to hear this. Uh, why don't we hear this next? Here's the Gina Wickwar uh, commentary uh, taken, uh, ripped from the headlines. So this is from a few months ago. There's so much news buzzing and whizzing by these days that it's hard to sit down and mull over one tiny piece of it. But always up to the challenge, I've managed to take a very small slice of world events to talk to you about. And it's about a big favorite of most Americans, pets. In this case, dogs. And it's also about another big favorite of Americans, Barbara Streisand. Dogs and Streisand, you ask? What's the connection? Cloning. Yep, cloning. Which is, very succinctly, the technique of making an identical copy of something. In this case, the something was Bab's dog, Samantha. This story came to my attention last week during one of those five-second news alerts that exist between a commercial for my pillow and tweets from our commander-in-chief. This microburst explained that Barbara Streisand, whose dog of 14 years, died recently, cloned Sammy to make two new puppies in her image. Hmm. In an interview in Variety, Barbara tells how it all came about. And, well, it's a sweet story, really. And I'll wager every one of us who has a dog nearing the end of life knows that replacing him or her with an identical puppy has crossed our minds on occasion. Fortunately, 99% of us don't act on this impulse. Barbara ends her magazine interview saying sincerely that each of her two cloned puppies is unique and has her own personality. You can clone the look of a dog, but you can't clone the soul. Still, she concludes, every time I look at their faces, I think of my Samantha and smile. As I said, it's a sweet, heart-tugging story. But it's selfish beyond words and monstrously expensive, about $50,000. We know deep down inside there exist hundreds of thousands of wonderful, big and little dogs kenneled in city and county animal shelters. Each one of them has its own soul and deserves love and a home. Adding to this, think of the vast numbers of puppy farms that exist all over the country, farms run by breeders who churn out litter after litter, and many of these pups, even pedigrees and potential show dogs, will not get sold or adopted and are most surely doomed to live a caged life for the rest of their canine years. So why clone even a single dog that adds to this animal explosion? Barbara Streisand is living in a world where a costly scientific process is thoughtlessly used to ignore thousands of canines who already exist out there, just waiting for a human to love. Folks who've not done much soul-searching of their own need to grasp that the way-we-were world, pre-DNA swapping, still remains the much better life journey for us and our pets. Barbara? Can you hear me? This is Gina Wickwar. 
Gina Wickwar, uh, who you hear her radio essays on a regular basis here on Access Utah. And today, she and uh, her husband Vincent are uh, putting up a challenge. They're matching your pledges dollar for dollar, so your money doubled. The number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Just a minute or two left, uh, Lynn McNeil. Uh, I just want to get this in. Some people may not know Gina Wickwar's connection to uh, the Wizard of Oz. She's a, she's a huge fan, um, introduced to the, to the series by her father. In fact, she wrote her master's thesis at University of Alaska Fairbanks on uh, Frank Baum. That's so cool. And uh, she is currently secretary of the International Wizard of Oz Club. She's written a couple of books in the Oz in the Oz world, so I didn't even know there was such a club. Yeah, so Gina, Gina is a very interesting person. We're grateful to have her with us here at UPR, and yeah. grateful for Vincent and Gina's uh, challenge today. Absolutely, and clearly their generosity is is being capitalized on by a lot of people. And there's still time, folks. There is still time to take up this challenge and make your donation go even further. Here's how to uh, take advantage of that, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Call now, or you can go to upr.org. So, Lynn McNeil, it's been great as always, and another plug, I'll put another plug, you have a new book out on The Slender Man. That is correct. Slender Man is coming, as the title, nicely ominous there, just in time for Halloween. Okay. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Access Utah is a great way to, you know, get a little... Dose of folklore every now and again. I love how much you guys are always supporting folklore here at Utah State. Uh, and uh, once again, 800-826-1495 is the uh, simple phone call to support this kind of programming, or upr.org. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. The scientific world is supposed to be a place where ideas come together, but instead it's often a place full of really brilliant people who don't talk to each other. Utah Public Radio's newest show is designed to break down those barriers. So each week, we're going to introduce you to two scientists from vastly different fields of research, and then we're going to lock them in a room together and force them to talk about life. That's Undisciplined, Fridays at 2. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.